and Betsy Roy, we love you. We're making her an honorary Southern girl. So everybody come up tonight and say y'all to Betsy so she'll learn to say this. And you'll go home speaking in other tongues, Betsy. <laughs> we love you. I would like to correct something. I don't think I was at the 1974 CBU conference. I first heard Catherine Kuhlman in Birmingham, Alabama, not Ridgecrest. So really, I'm not old enough to have been there in 74. <laughs> but Mary Ann was there, so I'm just... <laughs> She was trying to hide because she didn't want you to know how old she was. So I'm telling on you, girl, she was there. I don't think I was there. So I just didn't want to lie before I preached. So I'd like to, you know, <laughs> make that clear to you and God. I was not there in 1974. I don't know where I was in 74, but I wasn't there. Praise God. Well, we've had fun tonight. Carla, are you in the auditorium? Stand up, Carla. Last night I had a word of knowledge about Carla's knee. Can you talk real loud? Yes. Tell them what, tell them what happened. God's a healer. God is a healer. Praise the Lord. God is a healer. Praise the Lord. Let's give praise to God who is a healer. Hallelujah. Glory be to God who is the healer. Hallelujah. 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 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, let's stand to our feet and prepare our hearts for the word of God. I want you to lay aside everything that pulls at you, everything that would distract you, everything that would keep you from receiving what God has for you tonight. There are no chance encounters with God. When we come together, God has something in mind. And it takes the supernatural for us to walk in what God has in mind because God's thinking about things I haven't thought about. God wants to do things that I, I haven't even asked him to do. It takes the supernatural. So I'm going to read my text scripture to you and then we'll pray. I'm going to use Psalm 144. When you sit down, you can open to that scripture. I'll be referring to it, but listen as I read. Verse 1. Blessed be the Lord, my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Verse 11, rid me and deliver me from the hand of aliens, another version says strange children, whose mouths speak vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be like plants grown up in their youth, that our, our daughters may be like cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace that our garners may be full according to all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our street, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. And then Psalm 144, verse, verse 15 
is my text scripture. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Lay hands on yourselves. Now, Father, take this word and write it into our hearts that it will never again just be black marks on white paper, that this word will be uh, supernaturally imparted into the ground of our hearts. I ask, Father, that you would gift me and grace me to speak beyond what I've studied, to go beyond what I know, to step into the anointing of God by my faith so that I may impart to these women the richness of your word. Let it be written upon the tablets of their heart. Let it come into the tongues of their mouth. And let it be life to, to their very beings. I thank you now that Satan has absolutely no place here and no authority here. Even as we have declared, we are free here tonight. I am absolutely free to minister and to speak. These are free to hear and receive. And we thank you now for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to read it one more time. Psalm 144, verse 15. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. I was recently watching a television program. It was one of these news magazine programs. I don't remember, something like 2020, you know, primetime, one of those types of magazines, programs. And the, the theme of the entire hour was going to be stress and unhappiness in American people. And they were going to talk about what a stressed-out generation we are and what an unhappy generation we are. So they announced at the beginning of the hour that this is where they would go. And they began by saying that most American people today are very stressed, that their lives are, are full of stress, and that the average American person is really not a very happy person. And they went on to elaborate that we are unhappy about our food, that very few people really eat and enjoy food, that we're very stressed out about how dangerous food can be today. We study the labels, fearful that food will somehow bring sickness to our bodies, and they just did this whole thing about the food and how we American people relate to the food supply of our country. They move from food to money, how you know stressed out we are about money and how unhappy we are about the amounts of money that we make, the amounts of money that we're spending. They move from the money to the government, and of course I don't have to tell you everybody's stressed out about the government. Doesn't matter whether the Democrats or Republicans are in office, we're stressed out about it and basically un unhappy about it. They move from the government to the families and discover that very few people are really just absolutely, totally happy in their families, totally happy with their mates, happy about their, their children. And 
And basically, they ended by talking about how we view ourselves. And they came to this conclusion that very few people are happy about themselves, particularly women, that women are always unhappy about something about themselves. And that's why women are doing facial surgeries, all kind of alterations on our bodies, making ourselves bigger, smaller, plumping up the lips, because we basically just, you know, aren't happy uh, about ourselves. They did on-the-street interviews with people, and people were unhappy about someone or, or something. And they showed the faces of people as they moved about in their lives, and people looked stressed out, and they looked very unhappy. Then the host of the program went on to say that the media feeds that. Television and newspapers feed that. And he just did, you know, headlines and news programs that are on our TV programs and how they feed our unhappiness. And even he himself admitted there is no good news in the news, that no one really comes and, and tells you uh, good things. So this took up about the first 30 minutes of the program. And then in the second half of the program, uh, they, they started talking about why are we so unhappy and stressed out. And he went on to say that of every generation that has ever lived, that this is the best time to be alive, that this is the best generation that has ever been. And he began to give statistics. A hundred years ago, one of the major leading causes of sickness and death was an unsafe water supply. And the drinking water of modern of America a hundred years ago was just uh, full of germs, bacteria, and people became very ill and died from drinking water. And he said there's no one who dies from drinking water today because we've made these tremendous advances in cleaning up our water supply. It's cleaner than the water systems of America are cleaner than at any other time in American history. Uh, he, he went on to say that the food supply is healthier than it was a hundred years ago. That a hundred years ago there was no refrigeration like there is today and people became deathly ill just from eating rotten, spoiled food. But today the food supply is very healthy and sanitation and refrigeration have just done their work. And the government stepped in to ensure that it would be done. Sixty years ago, parents were stressed out about whether or not their children would die before they became adults because there were numerous childhood diseases that killed children 60, 70, 80 years ago. Polio was one of the leading causes of childhood death, and parents stressed out over whether their children would survive a summer and many parents uh, lost children to polio. But polio has been eradicated, as has most childhood diseases. And he concluded that the thing most parents are stressed out today are about Little League and soccer games. And no one stays away dreading polio, taking their children at an early age. 50, 60 years ago, he said, uh, women died giving birth to children. 
and children died during the labor process, but this hardly happens anymore. We very seldom lose a woman during childbirth, and we're making great strides in causing our babies to live when they should have died. Uh, he taught us that all of us are living, most of us are living better than our parents did that we're living in better homes than our mother and dads lived in, we're driving better cars, we have more education, and most of us are making more money than our, our parents did. He said that more people today are healed of cancer than are dying from cancer. And we never hear these statistics, but it's true. And then he said, in spite of world conflict, there are no wars on American soil here in our own backyard where our children are, are facing war. And he ended with this question, why aren't we happy? Why aren't we happy? And it, it just, uh, you know, kind of struck me when he said this, because I just move about, about life like you do, and there are just hardly any happy people. Go shopping at the mall, and you're just there with a bunch of stressed out, unhappy people people. Line up at Walmart, and hardly anybody in that line is happy, waiting to give the Walton family some more money. There are just very few people that are happy in, in those checkout lines. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and you can drive on the interstates at the risk of your own life, because it's just full of unhappy people, who if you just, you know, get out of your lane just the least little bit, give you the third finger of fellowship and have been known to pull out a gun and shoot you, you know. Uh, just unhappy people. We have reports all the time of road rage, where someone cut, cut in on, you know, somebody's lane, and they pulled out a gun and shot them. Just a world full of unhappy people. Uh, we went to see our only grandson. I have six grandchildren, just one grandson. Sam made all-stars last year in, you know, Little League ball. So we go to see Sam play all-stars. Now, Sam's just a hot little ball player, but he's in a slump. Do you know what a slump is? It means he's not hitting well, and he's in the all-stars. So, you know, his dad's just real stressed out about this. <laughs> and so they have commanded us to under our breath, you know, while Sam's playing ball. That's our, our son, my granddad and I. We can't do it out loud because we're amongst the Baptists there. They go to First Baptist Church, so we have to kind of, you know. I did forget when he struck out, and I stood up, and I went, and everybody turned and looked, and I sat down very meekly, and I said, you can tell them I, I live overseas and <laughs> I'm visiting you. I said, if that won't fly, just tell them I'm old. And I do that sometimes. I just stand up and say crazy things. I said, just tell them that. But anyway, you know, now this is, these are little old eight-year-old kids. So, you know, my, I thought ball games were supposed to be a lot of fun. No, 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 no. These parents are up there, hit it, hit it, umpire, you're blind, you're blind, son, if you don't hit it, and they're screaming, the little kids, tears in their eyes, and then Sam comes up, you can do it, Sam, 
You can hit it. Hit it. Oh, no, Sam. No, not a strike. Oh, no. And I said to Jean, aren't we supposed to be having fun at this ball game? Aren't we supposed to be happy? I said, why can't they just let the little kids play? Why can't they just let them enjoy it? Why do we have to knock it out of the ball field and have grandparents praying in tongues over them? I said, why do we have to, to do this? Now I'm going to make it more personal. Not only are people unhappy in the world, some of the most unhappy people I know go to church. Uh, you know, I run around with church people. I don't run around with sinners. Uh, I run around with church people. And uh, we're just unhappy people. I wish I could, you know, say some good things about us, but basically when the rubber meets the road, we're, we're just unhappy people. When I talk to a lot of Christian women, they're just unhappy women. I go into churches sometimes, and people are just unhappy uh, about things. And I read you a text scripture that says that God's people are supposed to be happy people. This is what the text scripture says. It says, happy is that people that is in such a case. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Happiness is supposed to mark the people of God. And happiness is the, uh, if I could put it this way, it is the emotional side of joy. Our theme that every one of us talk about is fullness of joy. And happiness is that emotional side of joy. Now, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is part of our character, so it's not an emotion. Joy is not happiness. The Bible says Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. So joy is something God sets before us. It is a strength that causes us to get to the end of what God wants. Jesus endured the cross because because joy let him look beyond the cross to what was coming. So joy is a fruit of the Spirit, but happiness is just this feeling of pleasure. Happiness is this feeling of contentment, this feeling of optimism. Happiness is the thing which allows us to enjoy life, and God intends us to enjoy life. And God wants his people to be marked with happiness. The first sermon Jesus ever preached was on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we call it the Beatitudes. And in the King James Bible, it says, Blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. But the Greek word for blessed literally means happy. So the first sermon Jesus ever preached to people was a sermon that talked about God's people being happy, happy people. And God wants us to be a happy people. In the midst of an unhappy, stressed-out generation, God wants us to stand out. 
as being a happy, contented people who find great pleasure and great enjoyment in life. And many times in church, we lose sight of that. How many of you have ever known a preacher that who thinks the, the worse he makes you feel, the more he's done God's business? Have you ever sat under that kind of preaching where it just makes you feel really nasty and bad? And a lot of people feel, you know, that God looks at us and says, well, they're, they're just too happy, and I'm going to make them sad. God spoke to me one time. I, I was in a, a conference of women. This was years ago. And I was just sitting there, you know, and women were at the altar weeping and crying, and they should have been at the altar weeping and crying. There's nothing wrong with weeping and crying. It's a part of God's process in us. The Bible has, says there's a time to laugh and a time to cry, so I'm not saying we should never cry. But in that, I was looking at these women. People were ministering to them. I was just in the conference sitting there. And God spoke to me and said, my people have forgotten how to laugh. And when God spoke that to me, he said to me personally, he said, when you minister, I want you to remember to make my people laugh because they have forgotten how to laugh. And it, it was true in my own life that there are just times I get so stressed out that I, I become unhappy and I forget to laugh. Satan comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he wants to kill, to steal, and to destroy our enjoyment of life, our happiness in life. What good is it to be a Christian if eventually we don't arrive in this place where we just enjoy our lives? We're just a happy, contented people. Now, I took, my family goes every year to Florida on a family vacation. There are actually 14 of us, another set of grandparents go, and we spend a week in Florida with our grandchildren, our kids, daughters-in-law. And so on this particular day, I had told Sam, my grandson, who's eight years old, the son of one of my sons, and Victoria Kate, who's the daughter of my other son, she's also eight years old, that I would take them to a carpet golf place. Now, this carpet golf place was called Black Light Carpet Golf. And literally what it meant was when you walked and it was inside, it was not outside, you walked into a room that was probably a little bit bigger than this, and it was black. Everything's painted black. And the, the little uh, areas where you, you know, line up to put your ball, they have neon kind of glow-in-the-dark lights. And there are all kind of little animals in here that glow in the dark, kind of neon glow-in-the-dark. And you're going to play putt-putt golf in the dark. And there's a little, you know, spot down there that's the hole. And, but, but you can't see anything. You can just see kind of this stuff, you know. So we're in there, the three of us, and so Sam is our little perfectionist because, you know, he comes from a dad who's a little bit of a perfectionist, and Sam just gets real upset if he doesn't do it personally and right. Now, Sam's in this putt-putt golf place, and uh, Sam tees off, you know, and the ball goes down there, and then Sam walks down to where the ball is. Now, I'm back here. I can't see Sam because he doesn't have anything glow in the dark. <laughs> but he goes down there to see what happened to his ball. 
And little Sam, when he got down there, said an ugly word. Now, it wasn't a cuss word. It wasn't a bad word. It's a word his dad says on the golf course. And his daddy didn't learn this word from us. But when his daddy plays golf, his daddy says this word. It starts with C, and it ends with a P, and I'm not going to say it. So we're just going to call it the C word. And if you don't know what it is, the devil will tell you when you get back to your hotel room. He likes to say this word. So just say, devil, what was that word? And the devil will reveal it to you. And then you say, oh, that was the word. But we're just going to call it the C word because we're in church and we don't like to use the devil's word in church. So Sam's down there saying, oh, C word. Oh, C word. And I thought, well, he didn't hit the hole. I just could tell because he's saying the C word. I can't see him, but I hear the C word. Then little Victoria Kate, who could care less whether she wins or lose or draws. She's just a, just a little happy, you know, little happy girl, just happy with her life, happy with her mother and dad. And she goes down there, and I don't hear anything for a while. And I think, well, I guess she's still down there, you know, playing and trying to get it in. And eventually I heard her say, Grandma, I got a hole in 32. Yay, a hole in 32. And then we move on to the next hole. And I hear Sam, C-word, C-word. Victoria Kate, Grandma, a hole in 50. A hole in 50. Grandma got a hole in 50 this time. And it really taught me something. I thought, when I walk in darkness, I don't want to live my life saying the C-word on every hole. I'm just going to be like Victoria Kate. A hole in 50. Hallelujah. It took me 50 times, but I got it in. Hallelujah. Just happy. Just happy. See, we just go through life saying the C word. We don't always say the C word. We do it spiritual. We say it in tongues or something, you know, but we're just unhappy about it. We're just not a happy people. Dad always said that when, you know, you get your driver's license picture made, you look like a convict who's on a binge, drunken binge, and just been arrested for killing somebody, which is true. That's the way, you know, we have that kind of startled look, you know, because you walk up and, you know, you're about to pose and they've already taken the picture. <laughs> you think, well, God, you don't even favor yourself, you know. So one day I was going to get my driver's license. I, I, I thought, I'm not going to look like this anymore. So I really prettied myself up, did my hair, did gorgeous makeup. And so when, you know, I know how they do things, so when they told me to get in front of the wall, I did this. <laughs> and I'm just smiling from ear to ear on that picture. And uh, so, you know, every time I show that driver's license picture, people look at it and say, well, look at you. Aren't you a happy woman? I said, yes, I am. They said, we never see anybody smiling in their driver's license pictures. Are you that happy? I said, yes, I am. I've had them pass it around behind the counters, you know, showing people what my driver's license picture looked like. I just came back from Virginia. I was up there ministering. So I'm at the airport. My plane's leaving at 545 on Sunday night. And I'm there, you know, a little before 3, and I notice there's a plane leaving at 3.37. 
So this little, you know, Delta attendant said to me, uh, well, what time are you leaving, Ms. Evans? I said, well, I'm on that 545 plane to Atlanta. But I said, I notice you've got one leaving at 337. I said, uh, is there any way you can get me on that plane? He said, no, ma'am, you're not going on that plane. I said, well, it's okay. He said, now, don't get mad at me. I said, I'm not mad. He said, well, 545 is the best we're going to do. And I said, that's fine. I'm just as happy as I can be about that. I said, just get me home. That's all I want. I just want to go home. Just put me on my plane. I'll go home. And he said, well, you have a good attitude, Ms. Evans. And I said, well, thank you. I'll try to do my best. So then he asked for my driver's license picture. <laughs> and he said, do you have a, a beautiful driver's license photo I can look at? I said, you are going to love my driver's license picture. I said, people pass this photo around behind counters. And I showed him that picture, and he said, you're right. He called somebody over and showed him my driver's license photo. And then, you know, he, he gave me my ticket. He said, Ms. Evans, I like you so much, I'm going to buy you a drink. And he gave me a free pass for beer and liquor on the plane. <laughs> And I didn't have the heart to tell him I didn't drink, so I just thought I'd bless some sinner with it on the airplane, and they could just <laughs> have that blessing, you know. And then they could be happy because they're drunk on the airplane. But he said, Ms. Evans, we just don't meet many women like you who are just as good, have a good attitude, and are happy like you are. And I said, well, I am happy. I am happy. Now, tonight, I don't want to give you a deep theological truth uh, about joy. I suppose this is really a, a prophetic word that God has given to me, particularly about women, that God wants us to be a happy people. God wants church people to be a happy people. Now, in Psalm 144, verse 15, it says, Happy is that people that is in such a case... And the such a case are these verses I read to you, beginning in Psalm 144, verse 11. And I want to just talk briefly about these, because I believe these are things that God's going to do in our lives that are going to release not only joy, but this, this emotional feeling of happiness, so that we really do become God's happy happy people. Now, it says in verse 11 of Psalm 144, rid me and deliver me from the hands of aliens. One translation says strange children whose mouth speaks vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Now, aliens or strange children are those things which shouldn't naturally be there. Uh, an alien in this country is a person who wasn't born here. They really have no citizenship rights here. They're from another country, and they're living here as aliens, not as natural-born citizens. They're not natural to America. They're not natural uh, to this, this culture, this, this uh, country. And when the Bible talks about aliens and strange children, we have to realize that there are things that can come against our lives that are not really natural things, things that are not 
you know, supposed to be there. Things that, that we should not, uh, you know, have carried about in our, our emotions and in our spirits and in our bodies. And the Bible says these things are aliens. They're strange children. And a lot of us women just live our lives with alien things. Things like hurt, unforgiveness, fear, uh, damage from abuse. You know, just alien things that as the people of God are not supposed to be there. And, and it's very hard to live your life when the aliens and the strange children are on board your life. Now, Jean and I are the parents of two children, boys. And my testimony is I always wanted to be a mother until I had children. You know, I just thought being a mother would be fun and games. And when I had children, I realized, you know, it was another whole dimension to being a mother. And Jean and I would take the boys every year on family vacation. And Jean and I would be in the front seat, and we would put the children in the back. And, you know, Gary and Mark were are brothers, but they were like Cain and Abel. How many of you have ever raised Cain and Abel? You know, that was what we had, Cain and Abel. They just fought like enemies. And they would divide the back seat with an imaginary line. And under threat of death, one son couldn't pass over the other line, you know. And Mark, the younger son, was always tormenting his older brother, who was four years older than Mark. And Mark would lay his little finger on the imaginary line of the seat. And as we'd ride along, he'd put his little finger over into Gary's land and jerk it back when Gary'd scream and holler. And, uh, you know, I said to them, boys, you're just th- you should be thankful I didn't have a knife or I would cut every one of Mark's fingers off to settle this problem. They would make deals with each other. If Mark would lay in the floorboard, Gary could have the back seat to sleep for several hours, and then they were supposed to give each other things. Gary never kept his end of the bargain. It was this, this, this war that went on in the back seat of our car for however many hours we were riding around. And I used to say to Gene, I don't believe these are Evans. These are Israelites. We've got the Israelites in the back seat. We're riding around with the Canaanites. How many ever felt like you got the Canaanites back there? just drove me crazy. And I'll tell you, when they left home, I didn't have one moment of crisis. I kissed them goodbye. And we rode around in peace because we got rid of the Canaanites and the Israelites. And now they are reaping what they sowed. Mark's got four Canaanites in his back seat, and Gary's got two in his. And how many know it's not pleasant? It's not pleasant to have the aliens in the back seat. You know, they weren't, didn't even act like Evans. Didn't even act like they came from a Christian family. You know, just, just you know, these, these boys who are just, you know, creating all kinds of problems. Now, Satan want, wants to do uh, his number in, in our lives. And if you study what the scripture says, you will find that when the devil wants to take our joy, and wants to take our happiness, that he will send demonic powers against the people of God. Uh, There is a three-chapter book in the Old Testament called Joel. 
And Joel begins by talking about four invading insects. And insects in the Bible are symbolic of demonic power. And insects, uh, you know, the, one of the titles for Satan is Beelzebub, and that literally is translated the Lord of the Flies. And there's something very tormenting about insects. Have you ever had to fight a fly? It's just hard to fight a fly. A fly will drive you crazy if he gets in your light shade or in your bathroom or your bedroom at night. There's just something tormenting about insects. And they're symbolic of Satan's demonic power. And Joel says in Joel 1 verse 4, That which the palmer worm hath left, the locust has eaten, and that which the locust has left, the canker worm has eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, the caterpillar has eaten. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, For he, and he is symbolic of the devil, has laid my vine waste, and he has barked my tree. Satan comes to lay the vine waste and to bark the tree. So there's just nothing left, just a little stump there. A tree is supposed to have bark, and it's supposed to have leaves. And the insects came, and they just ate it all. And then he goes on to say, the field is wasted. The land is mourning for the grain. The grain symbolizes the power of God's word. The grain is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, languisheth. See, these are symbolic of what Satan wants us to be. Wasted people, mourning people, a people who, even though the word is preached, it just withers up. We kind of dry up. Uh, the anointing may be here, but we just sort of languish. And then he says this in verse 12, The vine is dried up, the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree and the palm tree also, and the apple tree and all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. See, what has happened in modern America has nothing to do with our, our economic, political situation. Uh, it really is a demonic invasion. And even this man on the TV program, who, as far as I know, is not a Christian man, said, why aren't we happy? This is the best generation there's ever been to be alive. Why aren't we happy to be alive? Why aren't we enjoying life? And it's because... Satan has escalated evil, and joy has withered away from the, the sons of men. These are the aliens, the demonic hordes that want to attack our lives and whose purpose is to attach themselves to our lives in any way that they can. We Christians cannot be possessed, but we can certainly be tormented. We can certainly be oppressed. And we can be as anointed and full of God and yet have the demonic alien hordes who, who you know, grope in our lives. And so this is symbolic of a demonic invasion. The tree is barked, the fruit languisheth, and joy is withered away from the sons of men. My assistant, Marcia, she works for me, and uh, Marcia had a baby uh, Rachel was born seven years ago, and Marcia told us, she said, I don't want to put Rachel in daycare. Could I just bring Rachel to work? And so we said, well, as long as she doesn't disrupt anything, it's fine with us. So Rachel has grown up 
coming to work with her mother. And Marsha's office is across the hall from Jean's office. And my husband's just an A1, A-plus granddaddy. So Rachel and Jean just sort of have this granddaddy-granddaughter thing because she goes in there. If his door's open, she's allowed to come in and talk to him. And when she was little, Jean always read her story every morning before he started work. So they just had this special little relationship. Now, in Jean's office, he's got a wall of pictures of Jean with each one of our grandchildren, starting with the oldest. And he has a picture, just headshot, of he and a grandchild. And so Rachel comes in there and looks at these pictures. And she said to Jean, who are these? And Jean said, well, these are my grandchildren. And so one day they visited, and so Jean introduced them to Rachel, you know, and we just go on about our business, and the next day after everybody had left, Rachel came into Jean's office, and she pointed up to the pictures, and she said, have those others gone home yet? That's what she called them, those others. And then she said to Jean, why is my picture not up there with those others? And uh, that's what she calls them. Now, that's what Gene and I call them. He'll say, those others are coming to see us this weekend. <laughs> those others. And Satan wants to give you some others. So he wants those others to attach themselves to your life. So they're alien children. That's what, you know, the psalmist said. These are alien children. And he said what they want to do is establish uh, a falsehood of your life. So that you literally begin to think of yourself, I am a fearful woman. I never will get over this hurt. And we just walk around for years with this, this unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is an alien thing. It is not natural for Christians to be unforgiving. It is not natural for Christians to be unloving. It is not natural for Christians to have fear it is not natural for Christians to compete with each other, to cop an attitude, to be high-tempered. And the demonic hordes come and want to attack our lives and rob us of happiness. I did a conference on my, in my church, a mentoring women's conference, and my theme for this year's conference was women in spiritual warfare. And God took me back to the book of Genesis when God prophesied that Satan would have hostility specifically toward women. And he said, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. So here's the enmity between the devil and women. And women have always been in Satan's target. Satan had to get to the man, Adam, to bring sin and you read Genesis, he never said a word to Adam. He went through the woman to get to the man. And he has hostility toward women. When abortion was legalized in this country, it was Satan's hostility toward women. And throughout the Bible, Satan always tried to rob women of their children. So that the midwives in Egypt killed babies. Herod decreed that babies would die. And he's persuaded a generation of women in America to kill babies just because he has hostility, deep-seated hostility toward women. And when I, I read about Satan tempting the woman, I began to think, why was she ever tempted? 
because God had put her in a perfect environment. There was absolutely no problems in Eden. God had brought her out of the side of the man, and she was with this man who was in the likeness and after the image of God. So, you know, we would just have to call Adam the original hunk. I assume he looked pretty good if he looked like God. And I assume, you know, there was something about him that was attractive because he's like God. So here she is with this man who is like God. And, you know, he, he was obviously treating her well because there was no sin there. And there was just no weather problems. This woman never had to cook because they just ate off the fruit of the tree. And Christian television tells us it was all low-calorie, low-flat, and healthy. So, you know, she's not gaining weight from it. You know, she, they just walking around. I get this. Here, here they are walking around eating naked. So naked looked good back there. When was the last time naked looked good to you? Long, long time ago, right? I can't remember when naked ever looked good to me. Did you ever remember this? But they're just walking around naked because naked looks good. And, you know, I assume that she hadn't had babies. So everything that should have been lifted up was high and lifted up. And <laughs> everything that was supposed to be sunk in was sunk in. And, you know, Adam looked at her and said, wow, this is pretty good, you know. So, I mean, they're just walking around naked. She didn't have bad hair days like I have. She didn't have to go every month and get her upper lip waxed. <laughs> See, I don't know what this is with me. I can't grow hair here, but I grow it all over my face. Now, what is this? It just grows on that. I'm growing thicker, curlier hair here than I can't get any up here. Bill Cosby says it's because our hair gets mixed up. Men grow it out their nose instead of out of their head. I heard him say that one time. Well, my hair is mixed up. You know, just, I just have to go get it waxed off because I'm just growing all this hair. Well, she didn't have hair problems and naked look good. Jean and I one time had spoken in church, and we went back to our, our little hotel room. It's kind of like a little day's in, you know, just a little nice little hotel room, and we're in a state of undress because, you know, we were sweating hot. We hadn't put on our pajamas yet. We're just in a state of undress, and we're sitting on this sofa drinking our diet coats, and I look up at the wall, and there's a hole in the wall <laughs> about this big, and I said to Jean, look at that hole in the wall, and so we look up there, and we're looking at it, and I said, I wonder if this is one of those hidden television cameras. And there's somebody up there taking pictures of us sitting here nude and undressed. And Gene looked up there and he said, well, if they are, they'll plug up the hole when they see us. <laughs> he said, they won't want a picture of this. <laughs> he said, they'll just plug it up and move on to another room, which is true. Because naked doesn't look good. We saw on television, they did this program about a nudist church. And they took the cameras into this nudist church. Now, they bleeped out everything that should have been bleeped out. But, I mean, these people sitting there nude. And the pastor's preaching nude. 
And Jean and I were watching this, and Jean said, I would hate to think I had to stand up every Sunday morning and look at all of my congregation sitting there nude. And I said, I'll tell you one worse than that, looking at you nude while you're preaching. <laughs> a snakehead doesn't look good. <laughs> so, you know, she just got it all. She looks good naked, no upper lip to be waxed, hadn't had babies, no stretch marks, or hormones must work well. Married to the sexiest man alive, because he's the only man alive, so I mean, she's got no choices here. You know, she just married to him, and God comes down and just visits with them in the cool of the day, and they just, she doesn't have to cook, they just go out here and, you know, eat fruit, doesn't rain, so her hair's not giving her any problems. And Satan came and convinced her she didn't have it good. Just came, started this little mind game with her and started talking to her. Now, I, I don't know this. This is my opinion. I believe Satan talked to her and established what Psalm 144 says, this falsehood. Because Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said to us Christians, he says, now, as, as the serpent beguiled Eve... I fear that you Christians will be beguiled in the same manner by the devil coming and preaching another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. And Satan just began to make her unhappy and discontented with who she was and what she had. And he began to talk to her about another. Uh, you know, uh, there's just another way to think about this. I know God said that, you know, you, you die, but there's a, another way to think about this. And in my opinion, this vague unhappiness just came over her. This vague sense of discontentment that, that just robbed her. And a falsehood was established. And she left what was perfect, and she moved toward that which was imperfect and absolutely wrong, and she sinned because of deception, and then she had such power over the man that she persuaded him to follow her in it. And it's my experience that many women live under this vague sense of unhappiness. Uh, I, I just find this is true in church, that I talk to women and about their husbands, they're just vaguely unhappy. You know, they they just not really content with him. Uh, unhappy about the church. Uh, have very little positive to say about the pastor. It is a proven fact that many, many times couples will leave church not because the man's unhappy, but because she's unhappy. That she persuades him uh, to, to be that way. And there's just this alien spirit of discontentment, unhappiness. I see it in women ministers who just can't be happy with what God's given them. And they're just always pumping it, reaching for something else, competitive, trying to get where God hadn't put them, uh, you know, just, just unhappy. Women who can't really settle down, root themselves in a church because they stay for a little while and and all of a sudden, they just seem to be unhappy. Women who, you know, really 
aren't, aren't happy with the way they look and the way their bodies are made and are just this vague, vague sense uh, of discontentment. And I often say to women, well, well what is it that would, would really make you happy? And many times, women just don't know what would make them happy because it's a demonic thing. It's an alien thing that Satan comes to rob us. When I stand in supermarket lines, I look at the magazines that are there because I like to know what young women are reading. I like to know, you know what's in the magazines. I don't buy them, but I read the covers. And the covers say to me, women are unhappy because here's what I've read. These are things that are in magazines that women buy. How not to overeat, overspend, and overdo. Who doesn't need that one? We all do. Secrets of the stress-free. Get the body you want. Ten beauty secrets that get you noticed. Love your life. I hate my life. Get the life you want. These are all in magazines. He never wants sex. He wants sex all the time. 27 pants you'll look great in. I'd like to buy that one. I have never found them. My kids are driving me crazy. Amen. You know, how many can say amen to that? So this just says to me that we women just really aren't that happy. That, that we just are, are kind of this vague sense of discontentment even here in the church because of an alien thing. And then in Psalm 144, because we're, we're talking about happier the people that are such a case. So if we're going to be happy, God has to rid us of these aliens. God has to tear down the falsehood that they build in our lives. And then in verse 12, he says uh, that our sons may be like plants grown up in their youth that our daughters may be like cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace. Now, I'm a firm believer that, you know, we should gather together like this and that we should talk to you about, you know, destiny and purpose and all these things that we talk to you about when we have conferences. But it really bothers me. It's my heart for women that we women would become happy in the most intimate relationships that we have, that we would be happy with the men in our lives, or if there's no man there, that we would just still be happy, that we would be happy where our children are concerned. Because women, it's very, very hard to talk about joy here when it's not joyful there. It's very hard when your marriages aren't right, your husband-wife relationships aren't right, and your children have not done what God wanted them to do, it's very hard to be happy. And God is teaching us that right here at the most intimate level of our lives that God wants to break forth in Holy Spirit anointing and that God wants to heal us in the men-women relationships. Because when feminism began in this country, feminism took an extreme turn, and it went right to the root of the man-woman relationship. And in my lifetime, men have really been what I call dumbed down, meaning that men, uh, you know, the, the attitude of uh, women on television about men is he doesn't get it. 
And we see programs where women are brilliant and women are smart and the men just don't get it. Because this has just, you know, been portrayed in our society. So that even my granddaughter said this to their granddaddy one day. Granddaddy, men drool and women rule. <laughs> and, you know, he said something cute back to them. But when I was alone with them, I said, girls, you need to understand something about this family. In this family, men don't drew. We don't think that way about men in this family. And I said, Granddaddy doesn't drew. I said, this is not who Granddaddy is. Because the Bible says men to women are supposed to be like plants rooted. And see, men bring to women this rooting power. Even if they're not in our personal lives as husbands, uh, we relate to them in the church, and men have this ability to root us. My testimony has always been that I am the woman I am, first of all, because of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But secondly, it's because of the outstanding man God has given to me. And Gene has been like a root to me. He, he really has rooted me. He has kept me. He is my trusted advisor. I talk to God first, and then I talk to Gene. Whenever anyone tells me anything, I go home and I talk to my husband about it. He has been a root to me. And women, Satan wants to rob you of that. He wants, if you're married, he doesn't want your man to be that way. And many of you have been hurt by men, abused by men, and it has skewered your view of men. And yet we cannot be happy until God heals this because this relationship of male-female is at the basis of all God's going to do. Homosexuality is a dead-on aim at the foundation of creation, a man and a woman. And, and this has got to be healthy. I was in a conference where, you know, they talked to women about destinies and then they brought the women up and said, we're going to pray that you'll have fire over your cities. And so I was a part of it because I was a speaker there. And that was a valid altar call. I don't criticize anybody for what God leads them to do. But I knew these women because I was familiar with most of them. And I knew that some of them were single and they'd been just bitterly hurt by a man. And some of them were, you know, in the process of divorce. Some of them had marriages to men that weren't roots, men that didn't even read their Bible and pray, and some of them were married to passive Christian men. And God just spoke to me that it's useless to teach these women to have fire over their cities. We need to teach them how to bring fire into their families. Because cities are changed one man, one woman, one boy, one girl at a time. And God wants to start. I give you a prophetic word. God is going to bring revival to our families. And the men are going to stand up and not drool. They're going to take their place in God. They're going to stand up in the church and not be passive with their arms folded while women do it. They're going to step up in the name of Jesus and take their place. And the Bible says we women are going to be like cornerstones. Cornerstones mean we're the connectors. Uh, a man has a vision, and we women tell him how to do it. That's kind of what connectors mean. You know, we say, well, that'd work. And you do it this way, this way, we connect. Women are relational. We connect. I have sons. 
You know, sons don't really connect. You need a daughter to connect because daughters connect with you. So I made one of my daughters-in-law like a daughter because I said, God forbid, at the end, my sons, you know, are in charge of me. I don't want my sons in charge of me. I've already told him, you cannot write on my tombstone. It's in the will what I want on my tombstone. Because God only knows what they'd put. She was a mean old woman or something like that, you know, and be written on my tombstone forever. So I'm not leaving it up to those boys. But God teaches us that, that if we're going to be happy, women, if you're going to be happy, God's going to have to do something about your intimate relationships. And the good news is God is going to do it. God is going to heal our families. Raise our sons up to serve God. Raise our daughters up to be prophesiers. God promises us this. And he says, happier people, when their children serve God, when their intimate relationships are right. See, the, the most happy thing I ever do in my life is go home and be with my husband. And I thank God I'm happy there. I thank God for that. See, Jeannie and I have been, been married a long time. And, uh, you know, as you stay married, life just kind of changes. You know, when you get married, you think, well, it's going to be about sex and firecrackers and passion. And that is a part of marriage. But one night, Jean and I were home alone. And, you know, it was raining outside. The fire was going. We had hot chocolate. He's working a crossword puzzle. I'm reading a book. We had not spoken for one hour. We're just in the room together with the fire crackling, drinking hot chocolate. And Gene, you know, kind of paused and looked over there at me. And he said, you know, it just doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. You can just have sex with anything that walks around. But you can't sit for one hour in a room with just anybody and enjoy it. Just doesn't get any better than this. That's happy, women. That's happy. When you can have that at home, that's happy. When God has healed and delivered and saved the Israelites in your back seat, that's happy. That's happy. Some of you have grown children who are still Israelites in your back seat, and God is going to get those children in Jesus' name. I'm going to bring them to, to the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then the Bible tells us, not only go back to Psalm 144, and we're going to bring this to a conclusion. It says, verse 13, that our garners may be full according to all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our street, that our oxen be strong to labor. Now, I'm not going to belabor this because I spoke about it last night in the offering. But God teaches us that we need to have supply. Supply means that we just have what we need. And this is what, you know, all of these phrases mean, garners full, uh, our sheep are bringing forth, our oxen are strong, that, that you know, it, it's just doing what it's supposed to do, that we're supposed to have supply. Barbara read the scripture tonight from 2 Corinthians 9, that God's principle is to sow and bring increase, multiplication. 
I taught you that's the principle of God, to increase, to multiply. And that passage of Scripture says that God does that so that, that we can have all of grace in our lives and we can have all sufficiency. So some of you just need supply. Some of you need better jobs, more money, better houses. And God said that's part of his plan to make us happy, that we would just have abundant, abundant supply. And then in verse 14, it goes on to say that there be no breaking in or going out. Now, what that literally means is life just works like it's supposed to work. How many of you like it when life works? Don't you just like it when it works? When we plan a conference and we come here and it just works? And the Bible says there should be no breakouts, break-ins or going out. God wants life to work. He doesn't want us going from turmoil to turmoil, from problem to problem, from circumstance to circumstance. He just wants something to kick in and it works. That the Bible works, life works, the, the appliances work, the marriage works, the kids work. It just works the way it's supposed to work. God wants life to work. And, and there's a scripture I love in 1 Kings 5, verse 4. It says, but now the Lord God has given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. God has given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Now, when our son Mark went to ORU. They taught Mark about how to build churches, and Gene builds churches. And Mark was just always saying to Gene, oh, Daddy, they said to ORU, you need to do a demographic study. And Daddy, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this. And he just had all this stuff, you know, that was supposed to make it work. But now Mark himself has been pastoring a church, a church he started in 1996. And we'll call Mark sometime, and We'll say, Mark, how are things going? He'll say, fine. We'll say, is anything going on? He'll say, no, everything's quiet. And Gene and I always say to him, quiet is good. How many of you believe quiet is good? There's no adversary, no break-ins, no breaking outs, just rest on every side. Some of you have been through hard times, and God's going to give you rest on every side. Because God promises us that. If he promised that to David, he promises it to us. Rest on every side. And then, in conclusion, this is what he said. That there would be no complaining in our streets. Now, complaining is a real bad sin, women. It's just a bad sin. Psalm 77, verse 3 said, I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. When you complain, you overwhelm. Whelm your spirit. Job 7.11 says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Complaining is a bitterness of soul. And I was brought up in world-class complainers. My daddy's family were just champion complainers. They could complain about anything or anyone. And I just grew up complaining. 
I was a spirit-filled Christian woman. I was a complainer. I complained about this. I complained about that. I complained about you. I complained about the way the committee worked. I complained about the music. I was just a complainer. Uh, I just, you know, when the service was over, I complained about the message. I couldn't believe he preached it that way. It was on this. He just preached on that three Sundays ago. Uh, I, you know, just, I was a complainer. And the Bible says it was rooted in bitterness in my soul. And one day I read in Numbers that when people complained, it displeased the Lord. That when we did it, it displeased the Lord. So I decided to quit complaining. And you know what I decided to do? I just enjoy it. So instead of criticizing the message, instead of criticizing Marianne's message last night, you know what I do? I just say, thank God I didn't have to pray over that and preach it. (laughs) And I enjoy it. Doesn't matter to me whether she preached the right thing or the wrong thing. I just enjoy it. She and God will have to sort it out whether it was right or wrong. I just enjoy it. People say to me, what did you think about his message? I said, well, I'm not going to criticize a message I hadn't prayed over. I didn't pray over that message. I don't know what God told him to say. No reason me complaining about it when I didn't pray about it all week. You know, when you pray about it all week, then you have the right to complain about it. You know, so if you don't like what I did tonight, don't complain. Just say, thank God, I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to do that. Somebody else did it. Somebody else had to pray over it. See, I did a meeting one time, and the pastor was going to be going to put the youth pastor in charge of this service. Youth pastor never had been in charge of a service. I had a certain amount of time I had to be through. This little kid took off on this song, Better is One Day in Your Court, than 10,000 elsewhere. We sung it like 45 minutes, I think. And we'd just go, better is one day. Better is one day. Better is one day than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in the house than better is one day. And I'll tell you, I wanted to go up and lay hands suddenly on him and prophesy (laughs) that we weren't supposed to spend a thousand years in that church singing better is one day. But you know, God just brought me up short and said, "Just, just leave him alone. He's never done this before. Just leave him alone. He'd actually fall down on the floor behind the pulpit and strum his guitar on his back and sing better is one day. And you know, the people out there looking like they're about to have diarrhea or upset stomach, and, you know, and I've got to preach. Well, later I went back to that church, and the pastor said, you know, you are the youth pastor's most favorite speaker. And I said, I am? And he said, yes. He said, when I came back, he said, of all the speakers we've ever had, he said, you had treated him with the most respect. And he said, it really ministered to him. That, that you didn't say anything ugly to him and you didn't try to tell him what to do. Just treating him with respect. Well, I still don't like, better is one day. Don't sing that song tomorrow, all right? You're not going to sing that. Not sing that song. You didn't write that, did you? All right, good. <laughs> but, you know, just complaining, complaining. And then we close with the last verse. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Happy are the people who've been rid of the aliens. 
Happy are the people who in their intimate relationships are right. Happy are the people who have full supply. Happy are the people when life works the way it's supposed to work and you have rest on every side. Happy are the people who don't complain. And then he concludes by saying, happy are the people who are God's. So if we have no other reason to be happy tonight, we can be happy just because we're Christians. Just because we're Christians. And we're just, we're just different because we're Christians. When the doctor tells us, you know, one of us, well, you've got cancer, we're just different because we're Christians. Nehemiah was told by God to, to build a wall, and Nehemiah got to the wall, and Nehemiah 4 says that when they started building the wall, he said, well, look, the people who are trying to build it, are, you know, their strength is gone, and there's just so much rubbish that we don't know what to do with it. The, rub, the bricks were under the rubbish. He said the adversaries have come because they want the work to cease. And Jeremiah, Nehemiah was trying to do something for God, and people were discouraged. There was rubbish. The enemy had come to get the work to cease. And then Nehemiah said, I told the people this, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord, who is great and awe-inspiring. And what he was teaching them is that we have to always come back and remember the Lord. That for no other reason, we're just happy because we have the Lord. And I'm here to testify tonight that, that I have met the oppositions of the enemy. I've had to fight to have a spirit-filled marriage. I've had to fight to see my sons grow up and to serve God. Spiritual warfare is a thing that I have been involved in. I know what it's like to be sick. I know what it's like when you need healing and it doesn't seem to manifest. I have been through rough times. But I'm here to tell you tonight that I'm 68 years old, and in spite of all that hell can do, the Lord has brought me here tonight in perfect health, in sound mind, with my family intact non-complaining, because I serve a great and awesome God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Stand to your feet. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord.